0: Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But on the Bob phone from the U.S. of A., he's our guest, singer and songwriter, Loudon Wainwright III.
1: So long, honey baby. Where I'm bound, I can't tell. Goodbye is too good a word, babe. So I'll just say fairly well. Now, I ain't saying you treated me unkind. You should have done better. Hey, I don't mind. But you just kind of, sort of wasted my precious time. Ah, but don't think twice. It's all right. So, why did you
0: choose of all the lyrics and Dylan lyrics in the world? Why, why those particular great lyrics?
1: Well, uh, I knew them off the top of my head, and the reason for that is, is that I, I recently learned that song. I, I don't know a lot of Bob Dylan's songs, or uh, I mean, I, I know uh, "You Ain't Going Nowhere" and. Uh, it was a period when i sang uh it ain't me babe but but i never learned them and then uh a, a while back now it's six or seven months ago um i saw a version of him singing that song and then i as you, as you can do i jumped around on the internet and saw all kinds of versions of including a version he did with eric clapton and I just became enthralled with the song, and so I went to the trouble of actually learning it, and I have performed it on a number of occasions.
0: How does it go down when you do Bob Dylan at one of your gigs?
1: I think it goes down pretty well. I mean, people are surprised uh, because I don't really—I mean, I do—I do a few covers in my show, but I've never, you know, ex- except for you know early on, I've never done any of Dylan's songs. So people are are excited when they hear it, and then of course I. I do it very well, so they like that.
0: <laughs> I guess you get the humor out of it.
1: Gee, I hope so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know, it can be done dead straight, can't it? That song, you know, it can be completely straightforwardly heartbroken or angry, or there's all sorts of yeah, you know, because it's such a great song. But of course, I'll get this over with. When you when you first started, some people, critics, I guess, hailed you as not necessarily the new Bob Dylan, maybe a new Bob Dylan.
1: Yeah, I, I'm always quick to point out that I, I was the first of the new Bob Dylan, so <laughs> quick, quickly followed by John Prine, I think, just because I, I made my first record a year before he made his. But um, at that point, Dylan was uh, holed up in Woodstock and, and out of commission, uh, and uh, I think uh, labels and uh, the music press and uh, the general public were desperate for some kind of bob dylan maybe even a new one so if a guy comes along with a guitar and plays those songs i mean those chords those five chords that all of us know and play mm. um i think that people are quick to to label them uh, as as a new bob dylan as it turned out it was probably a good thing because it helped me get a record deal but then it got to be a pain in the ass
0: well, I'm sure, because you were really nothing like Bob Dylan. Like, not at all, except for the fact you had a guitar. But neither was John Prine and neither were Bruce Springsteen. No, it, exactly. You know. Or Steve Forbert, who's... Yeah. Well, you wrote the you wrote the song, Talking You, Bob Dylan, the sort of talking blues, right. where you referred to you, uh, yourself, and uh, Springsteen, and uh, Prine, and Forbert as Dylan's dumbass kid brothers.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's an accurate description. <laughs> I and mean, I, th- I think all of us... And so many others were obviously so influenced by the phenomena of Bob Dylan that um, we were happy to be his kid brothers. But um, musically, uh, certainly my songwriting is, I think, very different than his songwriting. The word that springs to mind when I think about his writing is is he's so cryptic. You know, it's mysterious and you're never quite sure where you are. Uh, maybe it's because my dad was a journalist or uh, I don't know why. But I, my, my writing, my songs anyway, are very clear and uh, there's nothing particularly hidden or mysterious about them. You know, they kind of have a beginning, a middle and an end. Uh, they're kind of, I suppose, more conventional than his. So that's the first big difference that I think of when I think of when I compare myself to Bob Dylan.
0: Yeah, I would think also the emotionally, your songs are very direct in, in the same way when you when you're dealing with the with the serious stuff, which you often do with humor. But that's pretty not on the nose by any means. But I mean, I mean, I know that I've seen you in concert and laughed my head off, and also wept. Neither one of those things happens at a Bob Dylan concert. You know, I love a good Bob Dylan concert, but you you spend all your time thinking and figuring and trying to understand what's going on uh, yeah. you know, which is has got its own certainly got its own charms i mean uh, did you see him early in the day
1: I, I first saw him perform live at the newport folk festival which uh for those of your listeners that don't know i mean in its day it's it still exists actually uh, uh, although it's nothing like it what it was you know it was it was founded by this man called George Ween, who also started the Newport Jazz Festival. And it was uh, in the early 60s, it was the happening young person's music festival. Because folk music, for a few years anyway, was kind of uh, booming, thanks to Pete Seeger and Joan Baez and Bob Dylan, probably. So I went up to, I hitchhiked up to Newport from Westchester, New York, where I, was living with my folks and, and I, you know, with a sleeping bag and my Martin D 28. And uh, that's the first time I saw Dylan play at that point. He was just, he was totally acoustic. It was kind of the, the times they are a kind of a time. A 63 yeah, husband, yeah. Yeah. Something like that. And, but then I actually went back to Newport and saw him perform when he went electric. Oh, that's wow. That summer with Al Cooper and you know those guys from uh, the Butterfield Band, my uh,
2: yeah.
1: I saw that. I was in the uh, on the field when that happened, and that was a marvelous moment. Uh, you could feel the the in the throng of all the, the, the several because by that time it was such a big deal. You know, it was there are thousands of people on this field in Newport, and you know, some people hated it. And some people really liked it. And I'm happy to say that I really liked it. I've never had the chance to ask
2: anyone this firsthand. The booing. I mean, do you think it was because the set was too short, the sound was bad, or was it because he'd gone electric?
1: I think probably all of those things. I mean, the sound was famously bad. And I guess it was short. But I think the the big, the the thing that got people, certain people upset was that it was such a radical departure from the kind of times they are changing, you know, blue denim shirt, very political uh, Dylan. This was something totally new and different. And a lot of people really did not like it. And
2: I guess that's more to do with him than with the fact that it was electric, because Muddy Waters had played Newport, right, before
1: then? Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. And they didn't uh, but, have a problem with that. Well, yeah, but Muddy Waters, I don't think... I mean, he might have been played the acoustic guitar and wore a denim shirt at some point. <laughs> but I think all during the... And th- that, that audience is, was made up of white, middle-class kids, yeah. really. I mean, I'm sure there were some black people in the audience, but in 1963 or 65, it was all young young white kids, college students. So their identification with Dylan was very strong. And, and again, t- some of us loved it and some of us really didn't care for it at all.
0: If you see the Murray Lerner film, you know, there's a, he made a film of uh, the 63, 64 and 65 appearances by Dylan. And uh, you can see 63, he's, you know, sort of people fall in love with him. And in 64, it's, it's a complete, full-blown love affair. I mean, mm-hmm. he loves them. I think he even says something like, they call him back for like a third encore, and he says something like, I love you guys. It's, it's so non-Bob Dylan. It's Isn't hard that to the believe. year when
2: they, he has the introduction, say so you know him, he's yours? That's the year.
0: Yeah, that's the year. <laughs> but but he, despite that, I mean, you can feel the love from the audience. It made it really clear to me that when I saw the 65 concert, it was like he'd spit in their face. Yeah, But anyway, so you, you saw him, you, you loved him. Did he inspire you to get moving on the songwriting front or the? Uh,
1: Not yet. yet. I mean, I, I was so in 1965, I'm five years younger than Dylan. So in 1965, I was probably just graduating from boarding school. I had just graduated from boarding school that summer and I was about to go to college and, Start to study acting. I wanted to be an actor. So, and I, I never. I played the guitar. I know, and I sang. You know, uh, s- some folk songs and a couple of Dylan songs. Uh, but I never thought of myself as a songwriter. My fa- I mentioned my father was a journalist. The yeah. idea of being a writer just terrified me. So I, I. I didn't think I'd be a songwriter, and I. I didn't write my first song until 1968. Actually. After I dropped out of college and um, been a hippie for a while in San Francisco and then on a guitar, a, a borrowed guitar from a friend. I, I, I so, Get this. I sold my guitar for yoga lessons. That's how bad <laughs> it was. And then in 1968 or something, I was uh, staying in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and there was a guy there who had a guitar. I remembered how to play cfg7 and i wrote my first song so that was the first time i actually wrote a song
0: and you i know your first album was very well reviewed uh but then um i've been reading also about your times as a a macrobiotic yoga freak uh that you you sort of were ambivalent about the success of your yeah, first album
1: exactly well wow. I made, made the first album recorded the first album in 1969 it was it's all voice and guitar it was for Atlantic records and it did get very good uh, reviews and um, and the like and there was a lot of attention I mean John Peel at radio one you know played the hell out of it and boy that helped and I kind of hid I I, I was ambivalent about performing I was I, I think I was scared basically of of stepping up and going out there and I did hide out for a while in a, in a macrobiotic uh, study house in uh, back up there in, in Massachusetts in Brookline Massachusetts and, um, and until one night I went to see the band perform at in uh, an outdoor venue at, at Harvard University and that was so enthralling and Moving, that I decided that I had to go back and literally face the music, my music, and I went back to New York and started to perform and uh, have a career.
0: I don't suppose did you meet those guys back then, or did you did you ever meet those guys later on?
1: I met those guys later on. I met them probably in the mid seventies when I was living in Los Angeles. I met Dylan for the first time probably in the early seventies. For those. Of your listeners who are fanatical about Bob, there there's was an important venue that that he performed at called the Gaslight mm. on, on McDougal Street in the, in Greenwich Village in New York. And next to the Gaslight was a famous pub bar called uh, the Kettle of Fish. The first time I met Bob Dylan was there. I, I don't know if he happened to be in the room or he came to see me for play, but all I remember is just being terrified. To actually be meeting the guy,
2: a lot happened in that on that street, I and mean, that's opposite the Cafe was as
1: well, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, there were a lot of rooms around the corner on uh, Bleecker Street. Was the the Bitter End, and um, uh, yeah, a, a lot of music was going on uh, in, in the '60s on those streets.
0: So, so you did a gig as were you a headliner at at that particular gig, and and Dylan came to see you, and
1: I might have been an opening act, uh, right? And a few years later, I was a, was a headliner at another kind of legendary room called Maxis Kansas City, yep. where famously Patti Smith was a waitress and Debbie Harry was a waitress, and uh, all kinds of things happened there. This would have been more like the, the mid-'70s. Then I was headlining, and Dylan came to see me play. Uh, he came with Doug psalm. Who is no longer with us, but who was a very respected um, musician from Texas. Mm-hmm. And, and they were hanging out. And I remember they came up to the dressing room. They both had cowboy hats on. <laughs> and Bob said, Yeah, man, I really like that show. I like that Dead Skunk song.
0: Just and what I you thought, want to hear. Huh?
1: Wow. the Dead Skunk had not come out. Oh, uh, right? yeah. You know, oh. and Dead Skunk. Uh, Again, there may be some of your listeners who don't know what the hell I'm talking about, but Dead Skunk was my big radio record, so so Bob spotted it early on.
0: That's really interesting that he he had his eye on that. Yeah, well... And it was just a throw... Presumably, you wrote it as a kind of a throwaway amusing song.
1: Yeah, it was... I, I You know, I've always had silly novelty songs in my set, and that song was... <laughs> that song is going to be in the first sentence of my obituary. I'm sure.
0: Oh yeah. We'll, uh, we'll headline it when we have you on the, on the podcast, loud and dead skunk.
1: <laughs> the skunk man. The Skunk, Yeah.
0: Skunky. Um, but do, what else did, do, do you remember anything else? Any scraps of memories from that night of, of meeting yeah. Dylan?
1: That's all I can remember. I mean, that was a long time, uh, ago. Uh, those were the two times that I actually met him. But, uh, they were they are they're <laughs> they're certainly etched in my memory for sure,
0: but you've also worked i think around that time or maybe a few years later, you worked with Bob Johnston in Nashville
1: well, yeah in nineteen the dead skunk record kind of came out in nineteen seventy three so so it must that must have been when I met Dylan, but then in nineteen seventy four I went to Nashville and made a record with Bob Johnson in five days with um a lot of those guys that played on, on those great, you know, on Blonde on Blonde and Nashville Skyline. Kenny Buttrey was Kay the Buttrey. drummer and Pig Hargis was the piano player. and uh,
2: Tommy Cogbill and and Reggie Young, the two of my yeah. favorite session musicians from Memphis.
1: Yeah, yeah. All those guys, those were the cats that Bob Johnson used. That was pretty exciting to make that record and to play with those guys.
0: Can you uh, tell us anything? I mean, of course, where is it rolling Bob? And Bob is Bob Johnston. The, that's the Bob.
1: Mm-hmm. Anything
0: anything about him? He was supposed to be an amazing character.
1: I think he was an amazing character. I mean, I I mean, I did. Uh, I only did the one record with him called Attempted Mustache. I remember Kate McGarrigal, who I was married to at the time, and I, and, my, and our son Rufus had just been born. He was down there with us, too, in Nashville. We stayed at the Roger Miller King of the Road Motel.
0: Oh, come on. And,
1: and the piano player, the singing <laughs> piano player in the lounge at the Roger Miller Hotel was the then unknown Ronnie Millsap. Oh, my oh, God. Fantastic. It was quite a heady <laughs> experience. Uh, but um, Bob Johnson was a very affable, congenial, loose. He liked to smoke pot. Loved to drink red wine. I remember being drunk basically <laughs> for those five days. When we, he worked. He worked very fast. You know, we would do it twice, and we made it v- incredibly quickly that record. Because um, those Nashville guys, I mean, they get bored after you do it three three times. But it was uh, it was quite an experience.
0: I mean, the musicians on that record. I, I really actually love that record.
1: Uh,
0: uh, Ron Cornelius was on guitar, right?
1: Yeah, and another great guitar player called oh, Mac Gale. Yeah, yeah they, He played with J.J. Kale a lot. I mean, great, great, great musicians. Fabulous. Has Bob sort of popped,
0: not, not literally popped into your career, but I mean, has he sort of influenced you as you've gone on? Or, have you, or did he ever really influence you aside from, you know, he's great? Because well, your stuff is so different.
1: Yeah. I mean, he influenced me. I mean, going back to the first time that I saw him at Newport, I mean, that was a, a very kind of momentous occasion. So he, I mean, again, I didn't start writing for a couple more years, but I was just to see one guy with a guitar standing up there uh, work in the room, which happens to be a cow pasture or something. I mean, was just, very powerful. So that was a huge influence. What happened was when I started my own career and started on my make my own records and, and really start to write my own songs, I made a point of uh, not listening to Bob Dylan. The new Bob Dylan record would come out and I would not listen to it. I think the last, you know, uh, I stopped listening uh, probably with John Wesley Harding. I think I just decided that I couldn't, i shouldn't uh listen to it and, and mm. should focus on my own work i think i think the the underside of that or the uh the real reason was that i was kind of threatened by his greatness and genius and uh <laughs> it would be too depressing to hear uh to hear a lot of him at that point were you able to go back to
2: him after that time had passed
1: well, not really I mean not not for a long, long time, and I- interestingly enough, you know it became a thing you know people would go did you hear the New Dylan record or did you hear infidels or did you hear any of those records that were that came out in the '80s and 90s and you know I would I would say no because I hadn't I, I had made a point of not listening I didn't I didn't go to see him perform until about Twenty-five years ago, I went with one of my probably my best friend, who's also a songwriter, a guy called George Gerties, who's a big-time Bob Dylan fan and incredibly knowledgeable, and um, listens to everything that Dylan has done. And we went to see Dylan and Van Morrison play at um, what used to be called the Felt Forum in New York. It's it's a small room at Madison Square Garden. I think it might be called the theater now or something. Anyway, we went and I hadn't seen Dylan perform in more than 20 years. And I finally, George convinced me to go. And I, you know, I heard all the the things about sometimes he's terrible. Sometimes he's good. Sometimes he says hello. Sometimes he turns his back to the audience. But I went and uh, (laughs) unfortunately for Bob, Van opened that show. And Van, who also can be erratic yeah. and, and tetchy and uh, you know, can turn his back to the audience, mm-hmm. Van killed it. Oh, the, the cat like in, cat's in the Yes, it. the incarnation of Van Morrison is here. <laughs> and she will yell, or he will yell, stop it, go away. <laughs> anyway, Van just tore it up. I mean, he was powerful and great and musical and really on that night. And then Dylan came out, and it was bad. You know, it was just um, was one of those nights where, uh, I, in my opinion, he just didn't give a shit. So that kind of uh, cemented my uh, some of my prejudices. This was around the time that you wrote Talking New Bob
2: Dylan, early 90s. So was that in your mind when you wrote the song or was the song out there already?
1: Well, that was on a record called history, which, uh, probably was 90, 92, 90, 93, something like that. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know if, uh, if I'd seen him before or after that. I mean, I, I, um, uh, again, I, I, have the most, uh, the reservoir of respect and admiration and awe for him. But, uh, I I make a little joke in that song where I say I, I kind of take a shot at self-portrait. But then what happened more recently, just last year, I went and saw Bob Dylan again for the first time since that time in Felt Felt Forum. I, I went with my, my girlfriend, Susan Morrison, and we had turns out that my accountant is Bob Dylan's accountant. <laughs>
0: Me. <laughs> what
1: a thrill that is <laughs> no. anyway so uh mario got me some tickets i wouldn't have paid a hundred dollars to go see bob at the beacon at that point but we went and saw the show and it was really really powerful first of all you you walk into the beacon theater which i'm sure a lot of people have haven't been there yet but it's a majestic kind of large old-fashioned big theater on broadway in new york and it was packed of course And there you were in a room with Bob Dylan. but Just that in itself was just, I became like a kid. I thought, I can't believe I'm in a room with Bob Dylan again. And then we sat down and it was a good show and he was into it. And uh, yes, some of the songs were unrecognizable and the band was great. Uh, So that was a very positive experience. And then I started to uh, look at old YouTube videos, and that's when I came across that those versions of uh, Don't Think Twice It's All Right. So I guess you could say I'm kind of a fan again.
2: That's great. I mean, he's better live now than he was in the early 90s, in, as far as I'm concerned. I think you, it sounds like you saw a great show.
1: Yeah, he he clearly, I mean, he was very quiet. He didn't say anything. He just played the songs. But he, he was respectful to the audience, which, of course, adored adores him and, and continues to do so. I mean, you've you've
0: worked with a lot of people who've worked with Dylan, lots and lots of them. But I mean, I know your uh, your friend and, and associate David Mansfield was on tour with Dylan.
1: Yeah. yeah, that's an interesting thing. David David played on the Rolling Thunder tour when he was, I don't know, seventeen or something. Yeah, I was kid. yeah. the cherubic um, <laughs> David Mansfield that everybody wanted to sleep with, and I did go and see. Again, this was about last year. I did go and see that Martin Scorsese Rolling Thunder yeah. tour movie, and I had taken a pass on that when it happened in real time back in the 70s because again, I had an embargo on Bob Dylan. But I was completely knocked out by that movie. I the, I mean, his singing was just terrific, I thought, and um that that was that predated the uh, the concert at the Beacon. So A little earlier, but I I started to get interested again.
0: And you, speaking of that film, I mean, you you duetted with Jack Elliott um, on one of your recent albums. Did Dylan's name come up?
1: Um, Well, I don't know if we talked about uh, Bob, uh, Jack, and I. I mean, Jack was one of my biggest heroes in those Newport early, you know, early '60s days. I idolized him, particularly his guitar playing. and uh, But I, I, I don't remember if we talked about uh, Bob when we... when we.
0: Uh, I think that's probably a good thing. I mean, he probably gets so sick of people talking about Dylan Viz of him, because uh, they were...
1: Yeah, well, those guys that played with him and hung with him in that incredible McDougal-Bleaker Street period, uh, Jack Elliott, uh, Dave Van Ronk, Eric Anderson, Pat Sky, those were all singer-songwriters that I knew. Again, they were five years older than me, but they were all kind of, in a way, they felt somewhat abused by Dylan, I think. That, that's my theory, just because the, the way that he at, at Newport and at Forest Hills, when he went electric, I mean, he just left all those other guys in the dust with their acoustic guitars standing there. And then they chased after him, and everybody tried to do folk rock, but All those folkies uh, just didn't know what happened.
0: I assume that when you saw him early on in 63, at least, we've talked to people who've seen him back then. And uh, we had one guest who who saw him uh, at the Royal Festival Hall. Was that in 63, Lou? 64. 64. But he referred to him, as so many people have done, as chaplainesque. It's kind of hard to see now. But does that ring any bells? Like, he said he was hilarious as well as heartbreaking and, you know, deeply serious. But he said that he was so
1: funny. I remember him being funny. I mean, uh, just last week or something, we caught the tail end of of Don't Look Back. And they have a clip of him. I don't know if it's at the Albert Hall doing that shtick about, uh, I'll let you be in my dream if you can be in yours. And he Mm. makes a Donovan reference that's very funny. He cracks the audience up. I mean, yeah, Dylan. Dylan's funny. He can, or he can be funny. <laughs> it's funny because he doesn't make any more. He does. He
0: writes funny lines, but they're, to me, they're not laugh out loud. Well, actually, no, I, I lie because you probably haven't heard the last Dylan album. Um, well, I've
1: heard some of it. I did a little homework.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, did you hear uh, on My Own Version of You, which is my favorite song, the one about building a kind of a, a perfect person, he rhymes Leon Russell with Saint John the Apostle. <laughs>
1: oh,
0: now that's cool. I think that's pretty good. And and when the first time I heard it, I laughed out loud.
1: <laughs> yeah, he drops a lot of names on this new record. I've noticed mm-hmm. that. You know, you got the uh, Rolling Stones and Anne Frank and Henley and Fry and yeah. Bud Powell and uh, but there's some funny stuff. I I like the line. Uh, uh, I drive fast cars and eat fast food. I mean, I think that's, that says it all. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. No, there's, there's a lot of really funny stuff. I mean, I think the uh, early on, I think um, I just like the phrase, geez, I can't find my knees. Mm, yeah. Grow that's, my hair
1: and grow my beard down to my knees. So strange look like a am walking mountain range or whatever that line is.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're bizarre. I mean, have you ever tried, have you ever tried to write in a way like Dylan and that sort of, more oblique style
1: uh no i haven't i mean i i again some of the writing oh, so much of the writing is so beautiful and, and then some of it kind of veers into doggerel i think there's a very funny um do you guys you, you i'm sure you do you must know who christopher guest is yeah oh, yeah yeah the filmmaker and, and uh, he's an old friend of mine i've known him for over 40 years and years ago there was a show um called the National Lampoon Lemmings Show. This is before Saturday Night Live, and mm-hmm. Chevy Chase was in it, and John Belushi, and a wonderful actress called Alice Playton, and and they all did uh, c- kind of skits or sketches. It was a live show of, and, and a lot of it was music, and Chris did an amazing impression of James Taylor, but his <laughs> Dylan is absolutely amazing, and he... <laughs> I, I can't really do my impression of chris guest doing bob dylan on the internet you, you, you've <laughs> got to find this Definitely. i think it might be on a record called radio hour uh the national lampoon radio hour but chris guest doing bob Dylan and the he has the guitar playing down that's the other thing and well, uh and you were and, spinal and, taps uh,
2: keyboard player before they were spinal tap i saw i found this on the internet the other day
1: i was uh <laughs> Spinal Tap originally was a, a sketch in a Rob Reiner uh, comedy TV special, and uh, and I was the keyboard player. And then they, this was before they made the movie, of course.
2: And you never sort of struck by any bizarre home gardening accidents or explosions or anything like that on stage.
1: Not yet.
0: Christopher Guest uh, directed Surviving Twin, which is on Netflix. Yes, right now which yes, is, uh, your one man show, uh, and it's uh, that's a that's a fabulous show.
1: It's, Thank you. It's,
0: it's got all, you know, so many of the great songs, the great
2: Oedipal struggle.
1: Yeah, it's about my songs. fathers and sons, primarily.
2: As you said earlier on, you started out wanting to be an actor, and then you kind of, you sort of found another path. But in something like Surviving Twin, you can see that that's never really left you.
1: No, I mean, I, yeah, I'm still an actor. I get paid to act every once in a while, and, and I love to do it. Uh, you know, put the guitar down and and perform in that very different way yeah I, I like i like acting when i get a chance to do it
0: you know what's an extraordinary thing to me is that your voice your singing voice has to me gotten better over the years well not i'm that it was bad, this interview but, <laughs> yeah, i agree <laughs> no but i mean really how, I, dylan's voice has gotten let's say it's developed different timbres mm-hmm. but uh you know it's 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 kind of a wreck compared to what it was and yet yours seems to have you know all sorts of Different levels. Do you? This is just. This is a professional question. Do you drink a lot of water? Are you just lucky,
1: or what the hell's going on? I'm just lucky, you know, and I'm lucky, particularly in light of the fact that I smoked cigarettes for many, many years. Mm -hmm. So uh, I've been very fortunate with the singing, and I don't know why. I mean, I've just been uh, lucky.
0: Yeah, because you. I mean, I do think your voice is kind of. It's weirdly underrated. People don't talk about it that much. But I, I saw you actually uh, at, okay, this is gushy fanboy stuff. I'm sorry. But I uh, saw you at the Union Chapel probably about 10, 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. And you did that a cappella, uh, Earth and Sky right. song.
1: That's a song called Between. Yeah,
0: Between, that's right. And you climbed into the pulpit. You climbed up into the pulpit. I don't know if you remember that. They have this giant pulpit on stage. Yeah, uh, yeah. that you have to—it's like a, one story high above the stage, and you sang this song a cappella, which ends with a, a very high note. It was—it uh, was impressive. What can I say? Bob Dylan couldn't have done that. Wow,
1: <sighs> that makes me so happy. But Bob Dylan couldn't have done that. <laughs>
2: Well, I don't know the exact reasons why Dylan's voice sounds the way it does now, but a few people have said, yeah, that's that's what cigarettes and, and alcohol will do. I don't, okay. I, I guess that's it. But yeah. what well, in, interests me is listening to your songs. I mean, like Kerry's saying, you know, you listen to some of the same songs on your recovery album, you know, some of those early, early songs, they sound, they they suit your voice better now, I think.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that was a fun record to make. That's a record that I did with Joe Henry, where we took some of the, first songs yeah my i didn't i don't like my voice on my first couple of records it's very high and keening and uh again i think i was terrified at that point in my career but uh, it was fun to make recovery and sing those very old song, then old songs with a great band and uh mm. work with joe henry
2: did you did this- um, the man who couldn't cry change post johnny cash's version for you in your head at all or, or not
1: I don't know, I sure love Johnny Cash's version of The Man That Couldn't Cry. Yeah. Uh, talk about getting the humor. I mean, he uh, it's on the, that first, first Rick Rubin record that Johnny yeah. Cash did, yeah. and uh, it's a live track, and he, and he, he gets the audience laughing. It's he great. Yeah.
0: Going back to, to Dylan, I mean, I don't know how much you, you know about his current oeuvre. Indeed, the, you've, you've said you, you did a big dropout, but was there one of his songs ever that you thought, that's actually not a very good song?
1: Well, uh, who's to say? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I could be. I can be. It's it's easy, it's very easy for me to disparage anybody about anything. <laughs> God love him. Nobody's close. I mean, he is the Muhammad Ali of singer songwriters. There's no other way to to say it for me. I mean, um, and of course, he loves. Uh, He's been recording these uh, the American Songbook too, which is which is interesting and terrifying at the same time. Yeah, and that That's Christmas it. album. Oh boy.
0: <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> have you have you heard the Christmas album?
1: I heard some of it. And this yeah, was, yeah, was, was before. This was before I returned to the fold. So I went in there with with my arms mentally crossed and, and heard some of it.
0: Yeah. I think what I think what you said about um, self-portrait was something like an interesting effort. Mm, yeah. Or something, there was something particularly scathing about your... I mean, a lot of people absolutely adore it and play it every Christmas. But um, I only heard recently that he sang a Deste Fidelis in Latin. <laughs> Somebody told me that, because I haven't gotten to the end of that CD. Oh. I, 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 I listened to the first couple tracks and... I think maybe the first four or five, because I cut being a Dylan fan. But I mean, I, I, it was killing me.
1: Have you done a Christmas album a I haven't done a Christmas album. I have done, uh, as it turns out recently, uh, an album of uh, great songs from the 1920s and 30s, a jazz record, where I, where I just sing. I'm a vocalist. Uh, there's a band uh, in New York City called uh, Vince Giordano and the Nighthawks. We cut a record last September going to be called, uh, that is called, I'd Rather Lead a Band, which is, that's the title track, it was written by Irving Berlin, and the songwriters, you know, these were the great songwriters uh, of their day, and and continue to be, I think my favorite songwriter is Frank Lesser, we do two of his songs, and Johnny Mercer, and Hoagy Carmichael, and uh, Lawrence Hart, and uh, that's coming out in October, and uh, that was, you know, it was really fun to, Put aside the persona of Loudon, the kooky, acerbic, sarcastic Loudon Wainwright III, misanthropic. What other adjectives can I come up with? Pain in the ass, and just be you know, put on a pair of headphones and sing with a great band. That was a lot of fun.
0: That sounds great. Uh, Unfortunately, somebody might compare you to Bob Dylan again, which will be uh, sort of. I'll I'll be the even
1: even newer Bob Dylan. (laughs) Yes,
0: (laughs) the new old Bob Dylan. Yeah, the old. New Bob Dylan, any words of wisdom you'd like to uh, to leave us with, uh, Loudon about showbiz or songwriting or
1: Bob Dylan? Um, I, I don't have any any words of wisdom for anybody. I will tell you that I dream about Bob Dylan a lot, which is an indication. Uh, I don't know what it's an indication of, but he is definitely on, in, under my mind. He's the most important person in my dreams which I think is an indication that uh, he means a lot to me. And, I, and I'm saying that with a completely, I mean it when I say it. I mean, he, he's just fucking great.
0: Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded on Zencaster, Stuck Inside,
2: Immobile. Engineered by Tom Paisley and produced by Robin Geis. Digital imaging is by Finn Geis. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network. Find us on Twitter at
0: IsItRollingPod. Today, Medgar Evers was buried from the bullet he caught. They lowered him down as a king. But when the shadowy sun sets on the one that fired the gun, he'll see by his grave on the stone that remains, carved next to his name, his epitaph plain. Only a pawn
1: in their game. I'm thinking of Burt Lancaster and the Birdman of Alcatraz. Want to see my bird?